Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. It's Hebrews chapter 7. Lord willing, this will be our last time uh, in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to hopefully get through it. I want to remind you what we have previously talked about so we don't have to cover that ground and then we can keep pressing forward. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 7, in the beginning, it starts off talking about who this Melchizedek figure is, this mysterious figure who shows up in Genesis and he meets uh, Abraham, and Abraham gives a tithe to him. He's also prophesied in um, in Psalm 110 that the Messiah was going to be after the order of Melchizedek. And so we get these wonderful descriptions of who Melchizedek is and ultimately his similarity and relationship to Jesus Christ. After that, we we see the highlighting, and you see that in verse 4, the highlighting of how great this man was. And then it goes on to explain that Abraham... It gave the significance of Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek. And it says that in the loins of Abraham was Levi and ultimately Aaron, and they gave tithes to Melchizedek. And the point of this is the superiority of the Melchizedekian order than the Levitical order or the Aaronic order. And then we talked about the significance of giving and tithing and all of that. So today, as we hopefully get finish the chapter, we're going to get to the nuts and the bolts of what the author has been leading you to. Who's Melchizedek? What's the significance of Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek and Levi through him? And now we get to the nuts and bolts of how this relates to Jesus. So look down to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is of necessity a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things have been spoken belong to another tribe for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, but the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should have For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So quite a lengthy section, but we will try to get through it all. And one of the reasons we're going to do that, I don't normally do lengthier sections, but it seems to me inappropriate to kind of break this section up because it's really all one flowing argument about Jesus and his relationship to and superiority to the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood. So what we're going to do is we're going to just follow the argument and see what actually Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, were saying. I don't know if you know this, but the the little book of Hebrews, little kind of medium size, is actually a sermon. It's a written sermon written down. It's kind of amazing the, the level of uh, intuitive or the, the ability for the audience to listen to this. I mean, this is really deep theology all preached at one time, but that's what it says it is. So let's follow his argument and see how the author ties the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic priesthood, and ultimately to Christ. So look at verse 11, and we're going to see the connection first of Levitical priesthood and its connection to the Mosaic law. So verse 11 says, For under it, that's under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. So there's a connection. Sometimes we think that when we think about Moses or the Mosaic law, we think about, well, the law, right? The Mosaic covenant is all about these hundreds and hundreds of laws. Even in Pilgrim's Progress, when John Bunyan's character Christian meets Moses, he beats him over the head with the law. So Moses and law are very much tied in our thinking, but the author here says it's not just Moses and the law, but it's also Moses, the law, and the priesthood. We, we can't ignore that. You know that section of the Bible that we like to ignore, Leviticus, remember we preached through that? It's all about the priesthood, right? The, the Levitical... Uh, Leviticus is all about that priesthood, and of course Leviticus is part of that Mosaic covenant. So there's a strong connection between the Levitical priesthood and, in fact, the Mosaic law. And this points to the fact that it's the same covenant that established all of these Mosaic commandments is also that same covenant that established the law. And so the point of this is this, is that as the law goes, so the priesthood goes, or we'll put it differently, as the priesthood goes, so the law goes. And so often we think what's really important is the law, and the priesthood is that little side thing. But actually, if you see, when we're going to see this, the argument is, is actually the priesthood is so important, and the annulling of that priesthood has profound implications about the law. And look to verse 12, you can see him make that argument. He says in verse 12, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now, that's a really profound statement if you think about it, that many of us, most of us, almost every one of us would recognize immediately that we're not under the Levitical priesthood. There is no priest any longer, right? And if there is a priest, if you're Roman Catholic, the priest is the pastor, but even he's not of Levitical nature. Nobody's asking, is he related to Aaron? Is he related to Levi? So we all recognize that there's a change of the Levitical priesthood. But some people are tempted, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, to continue to believe that the Mosaic Covenant, when it refers to its law, continues. So they recognize everybody. Even the Jews have to recognize this because there is no more. There's a few people, a few Jews out there that can trace their lineage back to Levi. But the Levitical priesthood is done and over with. That was destroyed at 70 AD. So after 70 AD, there is no Levitical priesthood at all, even in Judaism, let alone Christianity. So everybody recognize that because you have to recognize that. 
But some people, especially Judaizers, those who are tempted to be attracted to the Mosaic law, want to continue to hold to the law without the priesthood. And the author of Hebrews' point is, well, if the priesthood has changed, then that should tell you something about the law. When the priesthood changed, so too does the law. Therefore, as we see, the priesthood was no minor detail of the Mosaic Covenant, but it was actually central, and the removal of it had profound implications for the covenant that it was under. Now, as we, he goes on, he's going to contrast what the law and the priesthood couldn't do and what Christ could do. Now, the first thing he wants to tell us that the law couldn't do, look at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest would arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So you see the argument that if Levi was enough and Aaron was enough and that system was enough, then why would we need a further priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The answer is clearly it wasn't enough, and that's precisely why this was prophesied and recognized at the time of David. Even at the time of David, there's already this understanding for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that this system is insufficient to accomplish peace with God and to make one perfect. And the reason for that is is that all of those sacrifices, all of those thousands of sacrifices, millions of sacrifices under the Old Testament, under that priesthood, was insufficient to cleanse you from your sins. There was no sheep, there was no goat, there was no turtle dove, there was no burnt offerings. Pastor Neil went through a whole bunch of those offerings. None of those accounted for anything when it regarded to salvation and peace with God and to making oneself pure when it comes to God. I remember when I first, I wasn't even saved at this time, but I picked up my KJV Bible, was the only Bible I had and it's not really my Bible, it was in my parents' library, and I found the Bible, and it was KJV, and I opened it. The first thing I noticed was the archaic language. The second thing I noticed as I was skimming through or reading through, I got through Genesis, and then I got into Exodus, and then Leviticus and Numbers, and all of those Deuteronomy. And I remember seeing the, all these laws about sacrifices, and I went to my parents' with excitement or, and confusion somewhat, and said, Mom, do you know that we're supposed to be offering sacrifices when we sin? I was kind of looking around, where's the lambs? Where's the goat? Where's the blood? I mean, I sin a lot, so we're supposed to be offering sacrifices, right? Well, we have a better sacrifice that actually cleanses us from our sin, and that came through Jesus and not through the Levitical priesthood. That priesthood was unable to cleanse us from our sins. And that's why we needed that better priesthood, the priesthood that does not come from Aaron, but rather comes from Jesus Christ. Now, then he says in verse 14 that he, that he describes Jesus and explains how Jesus is not coming from the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Aaron. Look at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. So Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and that's why he was the son of David. David wasn't a priest, and neither was Jesus. And yet the priesthood was supposed to be completely isolated to the tribe of Levi, specifically in relation to Aaron. So you have Judah in relationship to David, which is the kingship. And then you have Levi in relationship to Aaron that has the priesthood. And Jesus came from Judah, not from Levi. So this point is, is that 
Jesus, even though he is a priest, doesn't have his priesthood in accordance to the Mosaic system. His priesthood transcends the Mosaic system. Does everybody see that? He's a priest, but not according to this order, but rather according to a different order. And he goes on to explain that order in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not in the basis of, of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And then he quotes Psalm 110, For as it is witness of him, you are priest after the order of Melchizedek. So notice the argument. Now some of you may have wondered why I uh, really went into detail about Melchizedek, because it's really, the Arthur begins with Melchizedek. Do you see that in chapter 7? He begins with, let me tell you who Melchizedek is, then let me tell you, let me break down what happened in Genesis when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, and then he goes and says, let me tell you what all that means. And we see the same thing. Now look at his argument uh, right here in verse 16. So he's not a priest in accordance to Levi or Aaron, but rather he's a priest. He's become a priest not on the basis of legal bodily descent. He's not related to these people, but what? But by the power of an indestructible life. So his priesthood relates to Melchizedek by a connection of that indestructible life because he is an eternal priest just like Melchizedek. And you can see that if you look back to chapter 7 in the beginning. So both are priests, and he's that priest because he has that indestructible or endless life. And then, of course, we see verse 17 again that this was prophesied way back in Psalm 110. Then we get to verse 18. He contrasts the, the power of Jesus and the covenant that he brings with the inability of that same covenant with Aaron. And you can see that. He says, verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a knowing of the former commandment because of his weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, it always amazes me when I find Christians or people who profess the name of Jesus being attracted to the Mosaic law. Have you ever met people like that? Sometimes you get these Jews for Jesus or these groups that are trying to reach out to Jews, which is nothing wrong with that. But sometimes what you discover is those groups are full of Gentiles. And so they call themselves Jews for Jesus, but then they're all a bunch of Gentiles. And then those Gentiles are following the law and keeping kosher and doing all of these things and becoming obsessed with the Passover and the Sabbath and all of these other things. And you always find people and they're always, usually a tip off that you're dealing with someone like this is that they're, they're Sabbath keepers, Saturday Sabbath keepers, and they always like to say, yes, you are, and then refer, never refer to Jesus. And they're just really into that Mosaic law, kind of uh, too much so, I would say. And what always surprises me is what is the attraction to that Mosaic law, right? I mean, if you read your Bible, from Old Testament to New, and read statements like this. I mean, look at the statement. He describes the Mosaic law as the former commandment, meaning is no longer for us, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. And then he contrasts that with the gospel. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the law is former, it's past, it's done, it's weak, and it's unprofitable, and it makes nobody perfect. So why go back to it? Why be attracted to all of those things over again? And I think the reason people are attracted is because the gospel destroys pride. It's so simple. 
There's no boasting to be had in the gospel. It's simply to believe. Isn't that the gospel? The gospel is very simple. You are a sinner. You deserve nothing but hell. But Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, has made a propitiation, made an appeasement, made a pool of his blood, and he invites all people to come to that blood and to find their cleansing and apply it through faith. Isn't that the gospel? It's very, very simple. You are a sinner. You need to apply his blood like Passover to your account, to your house, to yourself, to your family, to all who will believe. And if you do, God's wrath, his death angel will pass over you. But you can think about Passover, as I allude to that event, or another picture we have in John chapter 3 of the looking to the bronze serpent, all of those who would simply look would be healed. What kind of pride do you have of simply looking to that bronze serpent? Would you brag about that? Would you boast in that? No. All you did was look and you were healed. When it comes to Passover, all you did was apply the blood. You didn't work for this in any way. You just believed God, did what he told you to do, and put the blood to your account. And it seems that it is a crushing blow to one's pride that you did everything to deserve damnation and did nothing to deserve salvation. And so because of that, it seems that people will abandon the gospel and want to return back to this mosaic law of all these kosher laws and Sabbath laws and festival laws and all these 300-something odd laws in order to gain their own righteousness because they must have a sense of boasting, a sense of superiority, a sense that they have done something that their neighbor has simply not done. But as you, if you ever are tempted to do this yourself, or if you ever want to know, why is it that we don't do those things? Is it simply that we're too weak or unable to do kosher and Sabbath laws and circumcision and all these other things? Is that the problem? No. The reason we don't do these things is because, verse 19... But the law made nothing perfect. The law is the training wheels of righteousness. This was God's restraint for his temporary people, external people, to live righteous lives. But it ultimately did not achieve what people sought it to achieve. Rather, it was a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. The law made nothing perfect, but we have the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law makes you not perfect, but we, thanks be to Jesus, have this better hope, this better way, this better covenant with a better priesthood, with better promises, and ultimately a better outcome. And so there's nothing to look back to. There's no reason to be attracted to Judaism and want to go back into that law. And that's also kind of the point of Hebrews. Hebrews is writing to a people who came out of that system and now are going through sluggishness and spiritual immaturity and probably persecution and are tempted to go out of Christianity and back into Judaism. And what the author of Hebrews, probably Paul, is trying to tell them is there's nothing to go back to. That system is dead. It is empty. It never worked. And if you go back, you can't come back. Again, we have the better covenant, the better way, the better priesthood with those better promises, and we have a better hope. So the question is, in what way do we have that better priesthood that results in all of those other better things? Well, let's look at verse 20 and we'll see how we have these better realities. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. Inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he 
with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn, Lord has sworn, he will not relent. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first contrast of how we have a better priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood is the Aaronic priesthood was not sworn in by an oath from God. Moses appointed them, Moses anointed them, but God himself did not swear with an oath that these people are priests forever after the order of Aaron or anything of the sort. They became priests without an oath, but Christ became a priest with the oath of God. That's the first way that Christ's priesthood is better. The second way is look at verse 23. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood. So there's two ways here that Christ priesthood is greater than Aaronic, the Aaronic priesthood. The first is that Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. Okay. We're not waiting for Christ to be replaced. It's not Christ, then Joseph Smith, which is basically what Mormon teaches, that Joseph Smith is the final prophet. No, Christ is the final prophet. Christ is the completion. It's not Christ plus Muhammad. There's none of that. Christ is the final priesthood. He replaces the system, the old system, and he himself will never be replaced. Christ is permanent. They were temporary. Christ is eternal. They are fading. The other reason is there's this many versus one. Under the Levitical priesthood, there were many priests, and they were all prevented from continuing their priesthood because they all were subjected to death, and they all would die. But Christ is an eternal priest, just like Melchizedek was an eternal priest, and he lives forever. So there's many versus one, and there is temporary versus eternal. Hence, Christ has a better priesthood. Fourthly, look at verse 26. Christ is a better priest for, for such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have, who have weaknesses, but the word of oath which came after of the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. So another way that Christ is a superior, uh, superior priest and has a superior priesthood than those other priests is that Christ was holy, he was harmless, and he was undefiled, and he was separated from sinners, and Christ now is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Now let's contrast this with earthly priests. I mean, you can just think of this with Caiaphas. He was a high priest after the order of Aaron, appointed by God at the time of Jesus. So you have Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, and Caiaphas, the high priest, after the order of Aaron. Well, Caiaphas, and pretty much every high priest before him, I would say pretty much actually every high priest, was not holy, but they were unholy. Caiaphas, harmless? Hardly. He was very harmful. Caiaphas, undefiled? Very defiled. Caiaphas, separated from sinners? No, Caiaphas was a sinner. You see that? And it's not just Caiaphas, it's all of them. All of them are harm, harmful. Just find the person that they victimized, the person that they sinned against. They were certainly harmful. They were certainly defiled. They were certainly not separated from sinners, but themselves sinners. And that's why they needed to offer sacrifices for themselves to first get themselves right with God. And then they could approach God on behalf of another. And so the law appoints a high priest from weakness, but the gospel appoints a high priest in power. The law appointed a high priest like us. And before we get too beat up on Caiaphas and all of them, if he would appoint you as high priest, guess what? You would be harmful, 
you would be unholy, defiled, and not separated from sinners. Because the Aaronic priesthood was a priesthood of men. But we have in Jesus Christ's priesthood, he is a priesthood of the Son of God. What would you rather have? A priest of a man who's a sinner, who's weak and frail, and who's destined to die? Or rather, Jesus Christ, who's holy, pure, undefiled, and he's destined to live and only live. Christ has the much greater priesthood, and by extension, since his priesthood is better, then the covenant which he mediates is better. And so in light of this, why would we want to go back under the old covenant? Why, do we, why would we be attracted to those things? Why would we want to be put under that yoke once more? Christ has broke the yoke. He has made us free. As there is a change of priesthood, so there now is a change under the law. Now we don't have all these 300 laws about bacon and shrimp and clothes of multi-fabrics and things of these natures that all have passed away. that are about external realities. But rather, Christ calls us to a greater law, and hopefully we all know what law that is, the law of love, the law of true holiness. We can focus not on external matters, but on internal matters of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. So we have a better covenant with a better priesthood, and we have better promises. And so in light of this better priesthood and these better realities that flow from this, what are the advantages that we have? We've talked about this, but let's see the two advantages that our text mentioned. Now look at verse 22. In light of this better priesthood, under this better covenant, these are the better advantages that we have. In Hebrews 7.22, we read this. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So what makes the new covenant a better covenant? Jesus. It's one word. In him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Why is ultimately the new covenant so much better than the old? Because the old was mediated by men by Aaron and by Moses. The new is mediated by one, namely Jesus, who brings priest, prophet, and king all in that one office. And Jesus is what makes the new covenant so much better than the old. Now, what does that word mean when it says that Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word surety very often. This is found in the KJV and the New King James carried it over. Now, many of your Bibles says what? Say guarantee. You may have a note. My New King James says guarantor underneath. So this idea of a surety means a guarantee or a guarantor. The point is this, that Jesus guarantees the new covenant being better or is a guarantor. But even the word guarantor is, is kind of abstract, at least in my thinking. I don't really refer to a guarantor. What is a guarantor? So I looked up this word in the, all throughout the Bible. And unfortunately, this same word only shows up here. So we have no other use of this word in the New Testament. But fortunately, we do have it in the Old Testament, but it's not found in the canonical books. It's found in Syriac. So, but it's still helpful to look at that chapter because what it's talking about, and when you look at that, what you discover is that a guarantor, we don't refer to it as a guarantor, we refer to it as a co-signer. That's what a guarantor is. It's a co-signer. It's when the bank looks at your money and says, no, you're too risky. I'm not giving you that car loan because your credit score, your cash, your flow, there's too high of a chance that you're going to fail and we're not going to get our money. So even though we want to make money off charging you interest, you're too risky, so we won't do it. So what they say is, 
we're not going to trust you, but if you can bring someone else who can guarantee the loan as a co-signer, we'll go ahead and give you the loan. Because the idea is, if you don't pay, then they'll come after that guarantor, that co-signer. This is also why it's a terrible idea to be a guarantor for somebody. If the bank says, we don't trust them, and they have a vetted interest to make money off them, and then you decide that you're going to be a co-signer, you can see what's probably going to happen your way. Okay? There's a reason banks don't do that. But the point here is that Jesus is, in fact, a guarantor. And if you think about it, why don't you want to be a co-signer? Because you don't want to buy them the car. Isn't that right? I mean, if you wanted to buy them the car, you wouldn't be a co-signer. You just bought them the car. You don't want to buy them a car, but you want them to have the car. So you co-sign thinking you're being nice, only to find out two years from now that you're having to buy the car because they fail on uh, their, their, they renege on their agreement. Well, think about Jesus in the same way. What did we do? We fail to do our side of the obligation. So who suffers the consequences? Jesus. And then he guarantees the outcome will be good, and that is our ultimate salvation. And that's really what's going on here. Jesus is what makes the new covenant so much better because he's our guarantor. He co-signed on us and said, we will make it to the end precisely because I will hold you fast, and I will make sure that you complete my stipulations of the covenant. The reason why the new covenant is a better covenant is because of Jesus. Not because of you, not because you're more obedient to them, but because Christ is your mediator and he is your guarantee that he will bring you to the end. And that's exactly what verse 25 says. Let's look there and we'll close. Verse 25. Therefore, because Christ is so much better, because he's the guarantee or the guarantor of the new covenant, therefore, he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always makes intercession for them. Christ doesn't die. Christ is that priest after the order of Melchizedek that continues on. Christ was alive 2,000 years ago. Christ was alive yesterday. Christ is alive today. And he'll be alive, Lord willing, if life tarries here on earth 1,000 years from now. Christ never dies. He continues on. Now, why is that so important? Because since Christ continues on, then his mediation continues on. Now, think about who was the mediator of the Old Covenant. Who's the mediator of the Old Covenant? Priest. Specifically, it is the priest. The priest did mediate before man. That's true. But also Moses, if you think about it. Moses mediated that Old Covenant. And Moses... As long as he was alive, he could stand before God and say, please don't kill them, rather strike me, and God would listen to him. But what happened to Moses? He died. You see that? Moses died. He wasn't able to continue his mediation. But Christ and the priesthood that he has continues on. So we have this one priest, this one Moses-like figure who can continue to make intercession for them continuously. And this is why, look at it again, therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God. Now notice, this text actually is surprising because it might say something you don't think it says unless you look at it closely. You might think it's saying he's able to save those who believe in God through him or something like that. But look what it actually says. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So he's not talking about unbelievers, is he? He's talking about believers. Look at it again. He's able to save those who come to God through him since he always makes He always lives to make intercession for them. This is talking about God's ability to keep believers saved because he's talking about his intercession. He's interceding on behalf of believers. This is very similar 
to Paul's point in Romans chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 8. That Christ's intercession is not just Christ declaring you innocent and washing you through the blood of Jesus. But Christ's intercession is his continuous interceding on your behalf so your faith does not fail. Just as God has reconciled us to his son through Jesus, how much more will we be saved through him? Do you realize that Christ is continuously interceding on your behalf? As you continue to fail, as you wake up and sin, sin, and sin some more, why is it that your faith does not fail? It is because Christ continues to intercede for you. He continues to hold you fast. He continues to give you more grace. And a wonderful picture of this is in John Bunyan, when you have Satan grabbing water and throwing it onto the fire, and the fire does not go out, and you go behind that fire and you realize that you have Christ who constantly is dropping oil in that fire to keep it burning. But the sad thing is, if we're honest, it's not just Satan who's throwing water in our fire, but we ourselves often have joined Team Satan and are ourselves dumping water on our own fire. But praise be the Lord that Christ always lives to make intercession for us. And that's why he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. One last point and we'll end. What's fascinating about, about the book of Hebrews is we not only have some of the most terrifying passages in the whole Bible about apostasy. You think about Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 12. They're all over the place. There's these terrifying passages about apostasy. And yet we also find some of the strongest proof texts in the entire Bible about God's never-ending, never-failing, continuous hold upon true believers. This passage should be one of those passages that are a lifeline for you and actually explains why you're still here. I don't know if you've been Christian long enough to see other people fall away. And sometimes those other people who have fallen away were actually a lot more holy than you, if you think about it. They were a lot more on fire for the Lord than you. They had far exceeded you at that level, and yet they are lost and you remain. Why? Because Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The only question is, if this passage applies to you, is have you come to him? Have you truly come to him and faith and belief and repentance? Have you seen the law and seen Moses and as Moses condemned you and beat you over the head with those 10 commandments? And do you realize that you appointed once to die and after this to judgment. Do you realize outside of Christ you're doomed and you're headed straight to hell? And in light of that terrifying reality that you had fear, godly fear, true fear, and you cried out to God and you've come to God through him, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you have come to Jesus, he's able to save you completely, to wash you from all of your sins and to hold you fast. What a great hope that is. Believe it, isn't that wonderful? that you can all say, if you have come to Jesus, that he is able to save you to the uttermost and that you will conquer hell, tribulation, tide, flood, all of it, sin, the devil, everything. You will overcome because he's able to save you to the uttermost. Praise be to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that you have given us a better priesthood with better promises and a better covenant with a greater hope. Lord, we thank you that even though some of your teaching is obscure and difficult to understand, and that we can, even as good Christians, debate some of the finer points, that when it comes to the gospel, 
It is so clear, it is so obvious that anybody with eyes to see can see it, that you are a perfect Savior and that you save us by your own blood that you offered in that heavenly tabernacle that we read about in Hebrews. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be the person described in this passage that you will save because you intercede for them, that you claim them as your own and you will not let them go. We praise you for your work and we thank you for this priesthood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.